I appreciate so much Kendall's good job in directing our hearts uh, to the throne and Brother Ken's prayer as we have engaged in this beneficial worship already. My hope is I don't mess it up. And uh, it's, it's good to have the Peden family with us. Known Ken for a long time. And uh, Brother Bailey, good to have fellow preaching brothers here. And all of you who have come from other places, thank you uh, for accepting the invitation to be with us tonight for this period of studies as we talk about walking daily, humbly, with your king. In Micah chapter 6, with what shall I come to the Lord? That's a question that we need to ask. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? What is he looking for? A certain number of sacrifices, perhaps some extreme sacrifices. Thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil presenting my firstborn. For my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Before we're ever introduced to the first and second the greatest commandments. Micah really summarizes it here in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to walk daily with Him as a result. And to love your neighbor as yourself, to be a person who exhibits kindness and does justice. You know, I was always taught to play fair, do the right thing. I don't believe that's emphasized in our culture as much as it was when I was a kid, as my parents instilled in me at my parents' passing, and I thought about how I was going to summarize the lives of my parents. One of the things that I said about my dad is that he's a wheeler and a dealer. I mean, he would go to swap meets, and, and he dealt in toys and license plates and all sorts of things. But one thing I always appreciated about my dad is his fairness with people. Uh, just, just there's a right way to treat people, to trade with people, and, and he was always about that. And so there's a right way to treat your fellow man, but even more importantly, there is a right way to approach God and to walk daily with him, and that's what we're emphasizing. And yet, in the process of all of that, sadly, tragically, perhaps there is no greater tragedy than when God's people go wrong. I thought about several titles here, and I believe titles are important. Uh, my young friend Nathan Peeler, the son of Tommy Peeler, I mentioned Tommy Pledger, so now I have to mention my longtime friend Tommy uh, Peeler, his son Nathan just published a book, and it's on Amazon, and it's going to be in my mail on, on Saturday. And one of the things I told him is, you got to have a good title for your book, and you accomplish that. And so I would tell you what it is, but I've already forgotten it. But uh, it's, it's going to be a good read, I'm sure, because he's the offspring of, 
of Tommy Peeler, my good friend. But I thought about just naming this, When Covenant People Go Wrong. That's a little awkward. And so I wanted to talk about when God's people go wrong. And I want you to avoid, and I want to avoid, that particular outcome in my life. And here's the thing. This tragedy is found all throughout the Bible. It is seen in the Old Testament. It is seen in the New Testament. God's people going wrong. Why, why is that? And we're studying about the kings, and we see some of his people going wrong, some of his leaders who had once been on the right path, and they have diverted from the course. And we're going to talk tomorrow night. Actually, it's a good follow-up to this lesson about bad company corrupts good morals as another reason why God's people go wrong and don't assume that this has no relevance tomorrow night's subject because there's not a lot of young people that will be here to hear that because I don't believe that's a young people's passage necessarily. That's how it's often used, but that's not really the context of that statement, and we'll be looking at that tomorrow night. And so I want us to avoid this malady that we see so commonly. And if you were to think about just Jesus' ministry, who would come to mind? God's people that go wrong. The Pharisees. Oh, those wicked Pharisees. And we're going to be talking about them in a little bit. And the Sadducees, the religious sects of the first century. I mean, here are people who claim to be God loyalists who were not. And I sometimes, we sometimes use passages, we'll sort of take a passage out of the Old Testament next door in Hosea. So let us press on, let us press on to know the Lord. And we'll talk about, you know, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, Hosea 4 and verse 6. And so Hosea 6 says, we need to press on to know the Lord. And the irony about that is, God is saying that's what comes out of your lips, but that's not what you practice. In Hosea chapter 6, he says, your loyalty is like the dew in the morning. He, he goes on from that statement to say, well, that'd be great if that was really your heart's desire to press on to know the Lord, but that's not really the case for my people presently. And so I want to say this. Our confession with our lips needs to meet our confession in our practice. And what we say often does not speak as loudly as what we do. And that's why we read 1 John 3 and verse 18, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. You know, you could tell your spouse all day long, I love you, and say it multiple times each day, but if there are not acts demonstrating that love, then those words will be meaningless. And the same is true in our relationship with God. And so one of the things I'm going to tell you tonight is that this lesson and most of the lessons that I preach, people at Decker Prairie know this about my preaching, is I intend this to be very personal. When I talk about when God's people go wrong, I don't want you thinking about 
this church over there or this religious group over here or this brother that I know about that's left the faith. I mean this lesson to be intensely personal. The only person I want you really to be thinking about is you. Because that's the thing about control that so many of us have a fondness for. The only person you can really control is you. And so I want you to take this particular message and look very intently at yourself. Okay, so where does this begin? Della makes it her practice every morning uh, before she delves into perhaps something on her phone or anything else to, to read scripture. And even if something busy is about to take place that morning very quickly, she has to be in the scripture first. And that's her approach to things. And sometimes when she's reading, and we'll be sitting on the front porch or in the swing on the back porch, or if it's too cold in the living room, and she'll run across verses that she's reading and decide that she needs to read them aloud. Apparently, I need to hear them. And, or, or that she'll run across something that is of, of particular interest or perhaps something she doesn't remember reading before, and so she reads it out loud. And that's what happened not very long ago with this verse in John chapter 7, and we're going to be spending some time in John's gospel tonight, so if you want to turn over there. And of course, Jesus is dealing with opposition, uh, at least in the John narrative, on more than one occasion. But I had often quoted in preaching, and I, I'd worn it out, John seven seventeen. I think it's a very important verse. When it says, if any man is willing to do his will, this gets to motive. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Jesus is saying, you will properly assess and understand who I am if your heart is in the right place. If it is truly in your heart of hearts to do the will of God, you will know that I'm not speaking from my own initiative that I'm speaking from the Father. And so your willingness to do His will is paramount. It is critical. Now, I've often used that verse, but I haven't very often used verse 18. And I think one of the reasons for that is, in the New American Standard, it's, it's a little more awkward than a newer translation like the New International Version. And so in this particular instance, I like the NIV rendering that says... Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. Now before I read the last part of that, Jesus is saying... I'm not here on some kind of personal agenda. This isn't a Jesus agenda other than the fact that I and my Father are one. I am speaking that which issues from heaven, from the Father. 
This is not about me or speaking for myself for my own glory. This is about the glory of God. But the one who seeks the glory of the one who sent him, this is a man of truth. And there is nothing false about him. I like that. You find me a man or a woman whose motive is right, whose desire is the will of God above all else, and you will find someone that is all about truth. Do you pray regularly that God will guide you in truth? Not just spiritual truth but all truth. I talked about yesterday about my view of the world and the way I see things. And that if I'm wrong about that, could I have the courage to say I was wrong and the world wouldn't fall apart if that happened? Am I just concerned about truth? Even more so than the fact that I believe things presently about the world that may or may not be true. Am I a person who cares only, solely, completely about what is real and right and truthful? As much as we can know it. This problem of when people go wrong, when God's people go wrong, is addressed in other places. Acts 13 is a riveting passage. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. Okay, so the people that put Jesus to death would sit in assemblies every week They would read from the Bible, not some false literature. They would read from the Bible, from the Old Testament Scriptures, every single Sabbath. And yet when the truth was right in front of them, the very essence of truth, the Word of God, they exposed or tried to get rid of Him. How can we be that deceived? And you know this text, a couple of chapters earlier, we're going to put your finger there, we're going to come back to it. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. We encourage you, study your Bible, study your Bible, and well, we should. It's the life-giving word. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but it is they testify of me and so if you stumble over me and you reject me you're not getting the message of scripture properly you are not following what is there you are not responding appropriately though you search the scriptures he didn't say they dabble in the scriptures or they read it occasionally he says you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life but it is they that testify of me This is when God's people go wrong. And so I want to ask a couple of questions tonight and then make some concluding remarks. 
The first question is this, from John chapter 7 and verse 18, whose glory do you seek? Motive, and this is what John 7, 17 and 18 is telling us, motive is absolutely everything. The state of your heart is at the core of a right response to God and a proper understanding of His message. It was interesting to me at D. Bowman's funeral that one of the things Russ revealed about D.'s final days is that he expressed concerns to Russ along this line. I hope the Lord will forgive me if my motives were ever wrong. Our motives are good. Because they're my motives, you know. That's, that's why they're good. I, I have good motives. Well, we might need to look very carefully and honestly about that. Because if our motives are bad, or they go bad, we will fall into a ditch spiritually. Every plant that is not planted by my heavenly Father shall be rooted up. I remember I said yesterday that I talked about Robert Jackson having an influence on my preaching. I remember a lot of the things that Robert Jackson said when he preached. And I remember him preaching this text. Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father shall be rooted up. And the blind follow the blind, and both shall fall into the ditch. Those are passages to think about. And so I want to tell you something about man's approval. Man's approval is sometimes a very bad barometer of how things really are. And so I put together my own little chart here. It's Jesus' approval rating with men. And, of course, the goal is always 100% approval rating. You know, we have approval ratings on our politicians and our president. And I looked at the life of Jesus and sort of thought about how it all went. And I began with Jesus' baptism when his public ministry began about the age of 30 until the time that he was crucified. And I think it sort of followed something like this line. Now, somebody says, well, I'm not sure that you can accurately portray all of that in the scripture these are approximations but i'll tell you when jesus was doing miracles he was very popular with a lot of folks i mean after all people were being healed with with significant and serious diseases and they couldn't find those answers anywhere else and they loved to listen to him teach because he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes and so it was meteoric his approval with men. And then there was a dip. You remember John chapter 6? When those that had ate the loaves and the fishes came and he talked seriously about discipleship. And he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And he talked to them about, said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in yourselves. It is my words that give life. And then the flesh profits nothing. And it says, Many of his disciples withdrew and would not follow him anymore. When you talked about 
the real hard truths about discipleship and molding your lives after the Father's will, well, now that might be asking a little bit too much, and his popularity dipped. And, of course, he was still doing miracles, and so perhaps there were some waves like this, and, of course, we know it all went really bad toward the end. The last rise there, I guess the last hump we could talk about would be the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Boy, there was some excitement over that. And it was shortly after that that things went really south and even his closest disciples would flee in his hour of crisis. Only the disciple that he loved, if indeed that's the other disciple of John 18, was actually with him as his trial unfolded. Peter was warming his hands around the fire. Actually, the other disciple had led him into the courtyard. It says in John 18. And then at his death, at his crucifixion, there was just the beloved disciple and a few women at the foot of the cross. All of these disciples, where are they So it's something like that, even though I can't say that's exactly the right graph of Jesus' approval rating with men. But here's what I want you to notice about this chart. Here's the part that I'm absolutely certain of. What was Jesus' approval rating in heaven... At the very same time of all of these fluctuations with men. It was 100% straight line. I'm, I'm confident about it. Are you confident about that? I'm confident about that. Isn't that funny? And we're not talking about the world here per se. We're talking about the covenant people of God. And I want you to notice how that goes. Men can be very fickle. That's why Paul warns a preacher like Timothy about teachers and itching ears in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and tells him to preach the word and be instant in season and out of season. And I'll just tell you that there are some brothers who aren't too pleased sometimes with the things that I say and the convictions that I have and what I'm going to tell you about that is I'm not here to please everybody I didn't sign on to this work 37 years ago so that I could please everybody Who's ever done that? After all, I'm not pizza. When have preachers of the gospel ever received a 100% favorable rating with all the brethren? Who accomplished it? Leon, do you ever accomplish that? No, he said no. The fact that people get upset with me, well, I may listen to what they have to say. I'll do my best to consider... Honestly, whatever their objection is. But I'm under obligation to preach my convictions about the Word of God. And I will answer to God for those convictions. 
not my brethren. And I'll tell you, if people had problems with the Apostle Paul and with the Apostle John and with every other spokesman in the New Testament that we read about and problems with Jesus himself, don't you think they might have some problems with me when I am not perfect as he was perfect? But if I'm going to have as my motive the approval rating of men, I'm setting myself up for spiritual disaster. When you approach anything with that kind of an agenda, or an agenda to merely confirm your point of view, you set yourself up for delusion. The Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 4. This one blows my mind. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is in dire straits. He says, only Luke is with me. Timothy, bring Mark. Mark's useful to me. I love that. Mark, who had once forsaken him on the journey, and then he wouldn't take him on the next journey. And he ended up going with his cousin Barnabas. I think that was probably the providence of God that that happened. Alexander the coppersmith, well, he was another thorn in Paul's side, despite the thorn he already had. And he said the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And then he says this in verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 4, and this is the part that blows my mind. At my first defense... No one supported me. The Apostle Paul, are you kidding me? At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. I'd like to know more about the circumstances of that. I don't know that we're given much more information other than what he says to Timothy here. An occasion when all the believers deserted him. Whoever they were who were with Paul at that time. But all deserted me. And then he says, in the example of our Lord, may it not be counted against them. But he was not alone. Oh, men had left him alone. No one supported him, but he said, The Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. So you know what determines truth, right? If you post something on Facebook and you get at least 50 likes, right? If you get 50 likes, it has to be true, or or 50 cares, you know, that's, I'm not a real big fan of the care button. I use it sometimes. But uh, the, the care button, the like button, and if people laugh, I guess that's good too. That's not what determines truth. Somebody, well, my, my post was shared seven times. That, that's not what determines truth. There's only one approval rating that ever ultimately matters, and that's God's. And we need to be concerned about his likes of what we say, whether it's in that medium or in a pulpit like this or among his people. One of the things I love about God, 
that is so different than men is that with him there is no partiality and there is no shifting shadow as it says of him in James 1 and verse 17. He is always reliable and steady in exactly what he says he is. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful. I love that in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 13. He, he's not saying there that we're going to be saved even if we're, even if we're faithless. That's not, that's not what he's saying. You're, you're not going to be saved without faith. What he's saying is men can be very fickle and their faith is not a constant. It can come and it can go. But even if we're faithless, know this about God. He's always faithful. He's always reliable. So, whose glory do you seek? I want you to look into your heart of hearts. Is it really God's glory that you seek or your own agenda? And secondly... This question, what is the ruling principle in your heart? Now, let's go back to John 5. And there we see God's people going wrong and what the ruling principle was. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. You have to come to Jesus on his terms, on the Father's terms. He says, I do not receive glory from men. Now, there are men who would give him glory, but that's, that's not his motive, the glory of men. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me? If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. Uh, Paul sort of argues like that in 2 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11 about how the Corinthians had been deceived. And if someone slaps him in the face, they're okay with that. And they've rejected him instead. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. The Pharisees were all about how other people looked at them. Remember what we said about narcissism yesterday? A narcissist is all about his own image and how other people perceive him. They want to receive glory from men. They're more concerned about that than glory from God. And then in John 12, what, what was the ruling principle of their heart? Now before I get to this any further, in John 12, he said that many of the rulers believed, but they would not confess him because they loved the approval of men more than the approval of God. You see, it was all about them. It was all about men's approval versus God's approval. What's the ruling principle in your heart? I want to tell you what the ruling principle in the heart of the Pharisees was. The scriptures clearly tell us in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 18, it was for envy that they delivered it. I remember Brother Harold Turner preaching about envy 
from James chapter 3, and he said of envy, it was an ornery and cussed thing. Well, that's a good way of putting it. Where there is envy, there is disorder and every evil thing. Envy. What, what is that? that? That person has something that I want. And I would go to great lengths to deprive them of it so that I could have it. Do you think anybody would ever be jealous of someone else who wields influence in the local church because they wield more influence? You better believe that happens. Or some person who serves is more highly regarded as a better song leader than me. Listen, I've heard all kinds of song leaders, and I'll just tell you, some are better than others. Now, I'll tell you what you do about that. If you're a song leader and you're used by the Lord's body to lead singing, just do the best you can. That's what we do with preaching, right? I can't preach like Brother Leon. My goal isn't to be, isn't to be Leon Goff. My goal is to be the best Tony that I can be. I'll never be Brother D. Bowman. I mean, I, I, D. Bowman was one of a kind. Robert Jackson was one of a kind. You try to emulate their styles, good luck with that. Those guys were talented, given talent by God to be the kinds of proclaimers that they were. I can only try to be the best Tony Mock and the deliverer of God's information that I can be. And if somebody says at the end of the day, you're not as good a preacher as somebody else. Well, okay, I wasn't blessed with the same amount of talent. Or perhaps he worked a little harder than I did. Perhaps his circumstances were different than mine. I mean, after all, do we... How are you guys doing in the preacher ratings top 20 top 100 where where is that today did we ever crack the top 10 any of us drew we ever gotten top 10 i i don't think so this isn't a competition we're all on the same team why would i be envious if somebody regards the work of drew more than they regard my work just so long as god's word is being advanced Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 1. There were some people who were preaching who meant to cause distress to him. He said, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just thankful that the Lord's will is being proclaimed. Even though some are doing it with poor motives. You think there are some people who preach the gospel who have wrong motives? That is absolutely the case. But as long as truth is being proclaimed, some good can come from that. What is the ruling principle in your heart? And I, I look at some of the things that happened in Jesus' ministry. And John chapter 9. He's blind from birth. Jesus heals him. But you can't do it on Sabbath day. We have rules about that. Well, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. If, if anybody knew what the real rules were in regard to the Sabbath, it would be the one who created the Sabbath. They never put two and two together. Who is this that forgives sins? Only God can forgive sins. Well, that's right. So who might he be? <laughs> this person who can heal a paralytic. Oh, I'll tell you what we're going to do with this blind man. He gives glory to Jesus. We're going to cast him out of the synagogue. We'll show him who's boss. Wait a minute. Why aren't you rejoicing with this man? 
He's been blind his whole life and now he's got eyes that work. How can you not get excited about that? Because envy ruled in their heart. That's why. They hated Jesus and they wanted any pretense to reject it. Bad, corrupt hearts. That's when God's people go wrong. And we better watch our hearts. I got rid of my landline. I got tired of that ringing all the time. Ring, ring, ring. Interrupted everything. So I put my cell phone. It's on vibrate or stun. You know, so, so I don't have to listen to that incessant ringing. I, I got rid of the, the landline. Now, the problem with that is if, if somebody needs to get a hold of me in the middle of the night, some brother, that's a little bit difficult because that phone is over there several feet from the bed and it's vibrating and I, I'm not going to wake up. So I told the brethren at home when I preached this lesson, if you need to get a hold of me, Call Mike Moriarty's wife. She's still going to be up till 2 or 3 in the morning. You can get a hold of her. And if she needs to get a hold of me, then they can do that. If nothing else works, just come to my house and come to the bedroom window and tap lightly and quickly identify yourself before the shots ring out. <laughs> so I'm trying to let them get a hold of me in the middle of the night if it's necessary because you know as preachers, sometimes this happens. You know, somebody decides they want to obey the gospel in the middle of the night, and you you gotta you gotta have somebody ready to answer that call. But I notice I've missed a lot of calls, not just perhaps of brethren, a phone call every now and then, but I'm missing calls a lot of time from this guy, and perhaps you know him too. His name is Scam Likely. I'm missing a lot of his calls. Are, are you missing any of his calls? He, he's in your contacts too, isn't he? He comes up there. Scam likely. Yeah. Don't you hate it when you miss his calls? Nope. Be watchful of him. He lurks in a lot of places. Make sure you're receiving in your heart the love of the truth. I told you, Dell and I pray about truth all the time. It, it's become, because of the lies and deception in our world, more about that tomorrow night, we are praying about truth all the time. I, I just want to know truth, whatever it is. Just, Lord, lead me to know truth. And that, that may not happen in a night, it may not happen in a year with some of the truth that I might discover down the road. But I want to know truth. If you do not have in your heart to receive the love of the truth, what happens is delusion. God sends strong delusion that they might believe what is false. You need to make sure that in your heart, your agenda is truth and love of the truth. What's going on in your heart? Okay, let me talk one more thing. May envy be removed from our heart. We may have to work some to do that. One more thought from the Old Testament. You remember this text? Where is that? A generation arose that did not know the Lord. Where, where is that in the Bible? 
Now this is God's people going wrong, isn't it? Well, we know that's, that's the judges, period, right? Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. And in case we didn't get that, the theme, it's repeated more than once. Uh, three times, in fact, in the book of Judges toward the end. And everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And there was no king in Israel. Not just there was no monarch. God was not their king. And why is that? Because a generation arose that did not know the Lord. Have you ever wondered why that happened? How, how could that happen? Did they, did they quit telling the stories? Is that? Yeah, probably so. But I would think more than anything, not just perhaps they weren't telling the stories as frequently as they used to, perhaps they simply lost a passion and fervor for the truths of their history. And I know this is true, that now over a period of time as they've dwelt in the land and partaken of the land that flows with milk and honey and there is an abundance and Moses actually predicted this in Deuteronomy chapter 8 by inspiration. He says you're going to eat of the land and you're going to forget because of your affluence and that's why it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says that twice in Mark chapter 8, just to make sure we get it. And even Peter recognized how endowed with things they are because he asked the question, then who can be saved? And Jesus answered, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. One of the problems in our hearts that happens is our affluence, our stuff, our things, our comfort, our recreation, our pleasure totally dominates to the extent that we lose passion and fervor for God's things. Inferior things allure. And so I will tell you this, of all the reasons we could give as to why Judges chapter 2 is true, the malady that's at the heart of it all is that God is no longer front and center in their hearts and in their lives. God. Oh, he's still a part of their lives. I mean, how many of God's people who go wrong turn into atheists? Oh, a few. Because that's convenient. And it's usually not because they have thought their way out of belief, but usually it is first that they have behaved their way out. But I'll tell you what happens when other things crowd our hearts, when other things take precedence and first place above the glory of God and above truth, it is because very subtly, and we'll see this with Asa, very slowly, God is taken from front and center in our hearts and He's moved to the periphery. He's somewhere out here. He's not totally neglected. He's not totally forgotten. He's not denied in our words as if He does not exist. He's just not as important to us as He used to be. You know what I find interesting about this thought? is that it's really displayed in a New Testament book. 
how to avoid this same threat and to keep God front and center in our lives. It is really the whole story of Colossians. That's what it's all about. Do not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. He talks about being rooted and grounded in the proper things in chapter 2. To be firmly established in God's things because Jesus is the king. He says in chapter 1, and when he gets to chapter 3, he says what? Keep setting your affections on things above where Christ is. Because your life is hidden with Christ in God. And that's why you then put on the proper heart of love and compassion, bearing with other people. All of those things that are mentioned in the latter part of Colossians 3. And your heart is filled with thankfulness. I'll tell you what Colossians is all about. Keeping Jesus front and center in your heart. That's the whole message of the book. You you read Colossians this way from now on. It is all about knowing who Jesus is and keeping him at the center of everything. In your heart. And in your life. But all of this, as we talk about the right heart before God tonight, and when God's people go wrong, but all of this will have little meaning Unless you embrace completely the reality of God and realize that He is present and He speaks to me everywhere. You want to keep God front front and center in your life? When you go about your life, you see how God speaks to you in the beauty of things everywhere. We were looking tonight. Did you see the moon tonight? It was so crisp and clear and beautiful. It's almost like somebody painted it. It was brilliant. And that, that bright thing that was right next to the... Was that the space station? It wasn't a star, I don't think. I think it was the space station. But beautiful sky tonight. Does that make you think of God? When you see the pretty stream or the mountains? Or we can see all of those bales of hay. One of our members, Brad Walker, is he's a big part of our group. He's such a giving person. And he's one of our deacons. And he's been blessed financially, and he shares what he has with other people. And he got a motor home. For the last two months, he has taken his family out west for a long journey, viewing the beautiful things there are to see in our country of God's handiwork. He started off in the Badlands, so I called him Badlands Brad and talked about him in the pulpit, actually. And we all felt like we were on the journey with Brad. As Lydia would post pictures of all the places they had gone, all the Christians they had met all across the country as they traveled. And he had just taken his family to look at the wonderful things God had made so that they could marvel together at what God had made. Let us see God in all that he has made. And may we be assured that what we have in our possession
is the testimony of reliable eyewitnesses. So how do you you know this book is true? Well, there's some amazing prophecies in here, like the prophecy of a virgin birth, the prophecy that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, many hundreds of years before it actually happens. This is extraordinary. You can prove prophecy was predicted at least several centuries before it came to pass so specifically 300 prophecies in relation to christ alone and but even more than that do you believe there was a guy named peter a fisherman from galilee i do and that there was a saul of tarsus and that these guys and luke and john they saw these things they are reliable eyewitnesses And I can trust that this is God's message. And if you have a heart that is willing to do his will, you will come to that conclusion too. Can we assist you tonight in coming to Jesus on his terms? Let's stand and sing so that we are not deprived of that which is life indeed. Let's stand.